Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a founder that uh, definitely has the international background experience, and knows a thing or two about building, financing, and scaling companies. Also taking companies public, taking companies private, you name it. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Sanjay Gobil. Welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me, and uh, it's a great privilege being here. So originally. Born in Montreal, and then you were raised in India. So, so talk to us about you know the experience of being born there and then moving back <laughs> to India in the 1980. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I was born in uh, Montreal, Canada, because my dad was um, doing his doctorate, and then uh, at that time in 1970, um, the whole uh, movement was going on in India of uh, starting IITs, which is one of the premier institutions in the world. And so my dad decided to go back um, to work at IIT as a professor. Um, and uh, so we moved back to India and we grew up, I grew up in India. And um, it was a you know great experience for me because um, I had the background of the Western world as well as I grew up in the IIT campus, which is a very sheltered kind of an environment. Um, and the, the amazing part was a lot of the kids there actually were born uh, in the Western hemisphere because a lot of their dads did their PhD from, from um, you know, different universities in the U.S., Canada, and so on and so forth, England. And uh, so it was a great learning experience, great growing experience. And then, you know, in um, 1984, in high school, I moved uh, back to the United States because my father got a uh, teaching job in, in Auburn University in Alabama. Was it like a, a, a bit shocking when you got here to the U.S.? Yes, uh, I would definitely say that because uh, I do remember turning on the TV when we landed and uh, the local channels were going on and I was very, very apprehensive in terms of what language am I listening to, you know, because of the accent. But then people are very nice uh, in the South and um, it was definitely a big cultural um, change for me, but people very embracing uh, to myself and uh, I was able to adapt very quickly, which is one of the uh, things which um, is very gratifying being being able to adapt different cultures, different uh, different people, diversity. Got it. Got it. So, so I guess at at what point, um, Sanjay, do you start to develop the love for problem solving in in engineering? Yeah. So, um, so growing up, I was always um, you know very analytical, and I always believed in taking big problems to solve a big problem. You got to break it up into smaller problems, small, solve smaller problems, uh, which solves the big problems. So I always had that, that mindset, uh, in everything I did. And, uh, so going into engineering was a very logical thing, uh, for me to, to do. Um, so at Auburn, I, uh, so, so I, I, I was doing sciences and, uh, mathematics throughout my high school. Uh, physics, chemistry, all those good subjects. And then I was able to, I had the, you know, the uh, the great privilege of joining Auburn University, um, you know, as, as an undergraduate. And uh, I was able to graduate, uh, you know, in, in three years uh, from Auburn uh, because of the extremely good background I had in India. And then um, I had the great fortune of, of joining IBM when the economy was really, really bad. 
And uh, it's a very interesting story how I got my job at IBM, which is which is also, if you look at it from an entrepreneurial perspective, um, I remember I was I was out of town. I came back and I heard IBM is in town, so I went to the um, the the office where uh, students were being interviewed, and I talked to the IBM person who was interviewing for IBM, and I said, you know, uh, I would love to join IBM. He said, you know, all the interview slots are full. And I said, sir, but, you know, it's been a dream of mine to work for IBM. And um, he said, uh, okay, bring your resume. And I was graduating end of summer, and this was like in spring. So I went to my car, and at that time, you know, uh, we used to do everything on typewriters and all that stuff. This is the late 80s. So I got my resume, and we sat down, we mocked it up. And I never thought that I will um, get anything from IBM. And uh, Lord behold, I was the only one who got selected from IBM for a job. Wow. So um, yeah, and um, and you know, uh, so so IBM also had a co-op program which I got selected to. And um, but then I was a foreign student, so I couldn't work uh, at IBM. But um, and uh, important alumni of of Auburn, who was who was. Uh, a few years ahead of me who actually went to IBM was Tim Cook, who is now the CEO of Apple. So, uh, so, so that's, you know, something very interesting, you know, what, so Auburn actually helped me a lot in terms of how I grew up and how I was able to adapt to the American culture. And I mean, it was a great learning experience and great people, great, you know, I mean, everything was really, really good there. Very cool. Very cool. So I guess the, um, while you were working at, at IBM, you also, Mm -hmm. Uh, decided, you know, took the, I would say, the suicidal decision to also <laughs> complicate your life with a, with a master's degree. So so at what point were you sleeping? I mean, did you have time to sleep? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, so I, I had a very good background and I was, like you mentioned earlier, you know, very analytical. And um, and so I, I wanted to do my master's because, um, you know, I just wanted to continue my education. Um and uh, so I was working a lot at IBM. Uh, in fact, we were, I was traveling a lot also because I was working on a project with IBM, which was being developed simultaneously between, um, between IBM Germany and IBM US. So I was able, so I've, I was traveling a lot between the two countries and I was doing my master's because uh, we had a offsite uh, campus of Syracuse University um, in Endicott, where I used to live. Uh, which is in upstate New York. Right. So, you know, and, and there was plenty of flexibility there in terms of classes and all that stuff. So I was able to squeeze all that in and and um, and, and graduate. Got it. So then why did you decide to move to Washington, D.C.? So Washington, D.C. was a move because, you know, I grew up in Delhi, and which is a big city, and um, my wife grew up in Mumbai, which is also a big city. And um, so we always wanted to be part of a multicultural, multi, um, you know, opportunities and all that stuff. So uh, it was a very logical move for us to move from Endicott to uh, Washington, D.C., which is, which is in, in hindsight, a great, a great decision because um, being the nation's capital, you know, you have access to so many different things in terms of, you know, what, what we like and also opportunities in terms of uh, doing business, which at that time, obviously, I did not know that I'll be doing that. But that's what uh, happened, is that I started Infinite in 2001. And, and right after this and, and going there to DC, I mean, you, before doing your entrepreneurial um, mm-hmm. journey, you mm-hmm. did a little bit of corporate America. So like you were mentioning IBM and, and then also Verizon. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, and, and it's what it came, you know, to be Verizon, because it, it had a different name back then. But I'm 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 wondering now, you know, like during this experience working at both companies, what did you learn from corporate America and from each one of these experiences? Sure. So, um, so you're absolutely correct. Um, at that time, Verizon was called Bell Atlantic, um, and then Bell Atlantic uh, merged with um, with GTE, and uh, it was then called uh, Verizon. So, um, so and and what I really learned. From, from IBM and working at Verizon was A, the, um, the importance of doing business with, with integrity, uh, tenacity. Um, with IBM, I learned a lot about product development. With Verizon, I, lo- I learned a lot about how products can support a consumer 
right? So end to end, I was able to get a complete background. You know, how do you service a consumer or or a, or a customer using technology, and how does that technology develop and integrate and all that stuff? So, so it was a very good marriage between what I learned at IBM and what I learned at at Verizon. And IBM, um, I, I think one of the best experiences I had was when you join IBM at that time. They used to put you through school for for a few weeks, and um, you actually learned a lot in terms of um, you know basic beliefs and how 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 integral it is for you to maintain your um, integrity. And you know you have your basic beliefs, but at the same time you should be able to be able to be very adaptable uh, to the changing dynamics of the marketplace. And I think um, those things which are, are there, which really, you know, propelled me to 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 learn as I, uh, you know, started started Infinite in 2001. So let's talk about Infinite then. So mm-hmm. uh, you decided to say bye-bye to corporate America. And, and I guess uh, walk us through how you incubated the, mm-hmm. the, the idea and then also, you know, to what happened uh, before you actually launched. I mean, to that day, perhaps, that you gave your notice and you yeah. told yourself, hey, this is the time to do this. So, mm-hmm. so walk us through that process. So uh, I, always want, I always knew that, uh, and we all know that America is, you know, one of the greatest countries in the world, um, very open, very uh, conducive to business. And if you work hard, uh, anybody can succeed in this country. And you know, there is no better country for that than, than the United States. And and um, I knew that I had to be in business and I knew that it has to be a technology business because I always believed in the fact that, you know, you have to have a business which you understand. Uh, I also believed that I need to do a business which not everybody else is, is doing in, in D.C. because then there's nothing which, which is my blue ocean. Um, and... Most of the people here uh, were going the standard route of federal contracting and and uh, you know getting different statuses for minorities and so on and so forth. And that's something which I never uh, wanted to do. And I felt like there's not I did, there's nothing unique about what I would have provided as compared to uh, other people. So if you look at Infinite, when we started out, we started out as a technology company. We started as a company which was not focused on the federal government, which was not focused on the state government, which is very contrary to what companies in D.C. do. And uh, I wanted to have a focus on the commercial side. Uh, and my goal was to focus on a few customers, get my credibility, show that I can deliver on on big systems, uh, high high volume transactions, and uh, and go from there. And um, so that was my goal, like focus on a few clients um, and, you know, build my team. And um, and uh, so 2001, when I started, I started with $1,000 um, because that's all I had. I had no, I, I, you know, didn't have any external money, external sources of money. And since I was working at IBM and Verizon, you can imagine, you know, what kind of savings and all that stuff I had, uh, especially having two children and, you know, recently bought a house and all that stuff. But I said that if I don't do it now, I will never do it. So I literally quit my job. Um, and uh, after I, mean, I got t- home... That takes a lot, Sanjay, because having two children, I mean, you're saying this lightly, but having two children yes. and quitting, you know, your your stable paying job. I mean, yes. what was that night when you arrived back home and, and you were in your bed looking at the ceiling? So I was driving on, I was driving on GW Parkway and I was like, what have I done? Right. So because <laughs> there's no turning back. Right. And uh, so, you know, so, so that was my thing. And then obviously 9-11 also happened right okay. the same year. And so everything was topsy dory. Um, but I always believe in fate. I believe in that if you have the right intentions, things happen. And um, if I go, if I look at my entrepreneurial journey, uh, you can call it luck. You can call it fate. You can call it whatever. Right. But I think. In life, you you come across forcing functions which enable you to evolve to the next level, you know, every time. And that's what I've seen in my journey of entrepreneurship is that at every point in my life when um, I need to evolve or I need to change direction, some forcing function comes in, which enables me to do something which which takes infinite to the next level. Yeah. I mean, I so, believe that, that luck is definitely... Um a big component, but, but lack, yeah. you know, at the end of the day is preparation meets opportunity. 
Absolutely, sir. Absolutely correct. And uh, and I think uh, another big thing, which is which is very critical. I know you have been a big you know entrepreneur, and um, and uh, you have had a very uh, incredible, varied background. Um, I think the biggest mistake, in my opinion, um, entrepreneurs make when they get too narrowly focused inside, um, and then that's where the the growth kind of you know slows down or, or or doesn't happen i think i think it's very critical that um you know as we grow the business right uh, a product business or technology business or what have you right bring it for you know from a from incubation stage to a uh, a semi-mature state and then bring the right management team to take over that particular business and, and grow it and you move on to the next building block in your business and i think that's something which i identified very early in the game and so instead of getting focused on, you know, a few clients and just, you know, doing that, my whole focus was, you know, keep getting new accounts, keep growing the business, keep growing our offerings, keep growing our team and and have these people, you know, who I'm hiring go and take care of what I have. Because you can never forget your base. If you lose your base, then the whole business collapses. So if you look at any business, right, they always maintain their base. If you look at Google or Facebook or Uber, I mean, they always maintain their base. And on top of that, they keep starting new offerings, which is what Infinite has done over the years. For sure. And what, what ended up being the business model? The business model was, um, you know, uh, technology, right? Like, uh, provide technology services. And, um, and then focusing on a few verticals. We focused on the financial industry, focused on the healthcare uh, we focus on uh, the whole telecom thing, uh, digital transformation, and how do you how do you bring uh, experiences? So 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 from a vertical perspective, these were the industries we were focused on, and then we had horizontal offerings uh, which have evolved over a period of time. You know, we have we have actually gone through the journey from you know client server to enhanced GUI to now the whole mobility and security and cloud transformation, all that stuff. So so within like the last you know, 17, 18 years, the company has been in existence. Um, we have grown not just from a technology perspective, but also from a business model perspective, right? Because because the clients are now more and more looking for, uh, you know, how, you know, they want you to be a partner in their risk, right? The, the, those days are gone where, you know, products used to be developed over four years and spending hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Now everything is about blockchain and, you know how to go faster to the marketplace and quick, rapid prototyping and and um, you know agile development and so on and so forth, right? Um, yeah. So the whole the whole model has changed now. Got it. So what were uh, going back to the early days? What were some of the uh, early hires that that you were making? What was the first? What were like the founding team members and, uh -huh. and, and like what were some of the critical hires that you made? So um, the amazing part is the following: till I was about a fifteen. To 20 million dollar company i was the only person doing accounting hr uh legal you know you name it right and i was a full-time consultant and i was doing selling uh, because one thing which i did not want to do and I've, I've done a lot of studies on dot coms and why they have failed and so on and so forth but because the business model was all about um trying to live an image rather than having an image which you can sustain and so what was happening was a lot of these companies were hiring a lot of executives and taking the high best offices and having all these business plans. And then what happened was that when the market collapsed, um, they couldn't sustain that lifestyle. They couldn't sustain that image, right? And a lot of these companies failed. However, businesses like, you know, if you look at um, Amazon or if you look at Priceline and you look at all these companies which did survive the whole dot-com era, I think they were embedded in a business model which they could sustain and if you look at all these companies you know they were operating out of seattle or what have you and you know they had low overheads and they were more focused on the business and the business supporting image which they could which, which they could sustain uh versus an image which they had to sustain and trying to get business to sustain that image so so you know it, so it's a flip model um but but i think that's very important that you have a business which which you can sustain. So from my perspective, um, you know, since I was a new company and I was competing with the dot-coms at that time and and later, it was it was a very hard process for me. And I didn't have external funding, so I didn't have the credibility. So it was extremely hard 
um, way of going about it, right? But I think I always believed in the fact that teamwork is most important, right? And I always give this example of the New York Giants, right? Uh, if you remember the New York Giants, um, they used to have a running back called Barber and they used to have they're called Shockley, right? And uh, in the NFL, and then both these players were gone, right? And I remember watching the very next year where they hardly had any running back. And if you remember that year, they won the Super Bowl. And uh, I always give that example because the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, you don't need superstars to, to win a championship, right? You need a team to win a championship. And uh, I was able to hire people who were probably not the best people, but they had the passion and they were undiscovered gems. And I was able to mold them to an entrepreneurship journey uh, for infinite, right? And they became my, uh, you know, the, the 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 messaging people, right, across the organization. That's how the culture spreads. You know, from the founder to all the way down, the, the way the culture spreads is not by the founder having everyday calls with these people and saying, this is the culture. The culture comes in because how um, it's actually executed. And the execution happens when you have your teachers, when people who you teach or, or and through the working, then, you know, they, they, they take that culture, they propagate it all the way down. And that's what Infinite is. If you look at Infinite, it's a very entrepreneurial driven company. People work extremely hard. Uh, they're success driven. They're driven for customer satisfaction. Um, and uh, they take, you know, we celebrate our losses and we celebrate our wins. Um, and every loss, big or small, we take it very personally. We do a, a, a analysis as to why we failed so that we do it better the next time. Yeah. So, you know. and, and that's very profound, uh, Sanjay, by the way. I think that, you know, people get to get too stuck on, on how qualified an individual is. But, but going yep. back to what you were saying, I think it's all a matter of how those individuals are able to work together. That's what exactly. really makes a company work. Exactly, exactly. You're absolutely right. And, and you know, like, um, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Because the, the, the other thing is, in a company like Infinite, when we're starting out, right, is that, you know, we we didn't a, a we couldn't get them, b we couldn't afford them, but c we didn't want any pre Madonnas because then that creates hierarchy within an organization, right? And a startup culture, there is no hierarchy, right? Everybody is trying to do the best they can, right? Yes, you need uh, teamwork. Yes, you need integration. Yes, you need to have some, uh, you know, uh, distinction between what you know what product engineering is doing to what what system engineering is doing to what software development is doing to whatever. But at the same time, there's also a lot of overlap because people are trying to do multiple functions. For sure, for sure. So Sanjay, I guess during those uh, early days, what were some of the biggest challenges? The biggest challenges we had was, um, was you know, when we used to go to clients, I, I, I was always focused on getting big clients because like I mentioned before, my whole goal was to uh, execute projects which, which um, which were um, state-of-the-art, uh, high transactional, high volume, which I can go and sell to other other companies. So the biggest challenge and the biggest uh, issues we had was, A, uh, being a technology business, you know, getting the right talent, B, um, establishing credibility. Like, we, we were competing with, you know, the, the bigger companies, right? So the bigger companies, when they went for a presentation, they only had to talk one minute about who they are, right? There was never an issue that can they deliver or not deliver. But when you're starting out, um, you know, um, you have to spend 55 minutes out of 60 minutes trying to explain that, yes, you can do the project. Yes, you can execute. Yes, you can deliver, right? And people really have to take a chance on you versus the other companies because, you know, with other companies, if they fail, right, it's, 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 it's something, you know, it's, it's, it's acceptable because, you know, it's it, it, it's a one-off thing, right? But if somebody takes a chance on me or with Infinite and we're a new company, the person who's taking a chance on us can always be questioned as to why did you choose Infinite, right? So I think that was one of the biggest challenges we had. Um, but we had a very dedicated team, um, you know, and we built our credibility from the bottoms up. Uh, and, um, and that's how we were able to grow. We were able to grow from, you know, literally... I don't know, 60000 70000 dollars in revenue in two thousand one to now uh, over seven hundred million dollars of revenue 
this year and we're probably going to cross a billion dollars in a couple of years. So I'm getting, uh, I'm getting dizzy from all this zero. No, <laughs> <laughs> no you're, you're very modest. I know you. Uh, but but my, but my point is that um, you know, and and we were able to grow to you know over 7,400 employees. Uh, but at the same time, we were very focused. You know, like people always ask me, how come you're not in Europe and how come you're not here or there, yeah. right? And I always say one thing, right? Um, people spend 70% of the time on 30% of. Um, of the work and 30% of the work on 70% of their time, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, the thing is that people who are able to create that balance, right, of, of, of equilibrium between the amount of work and the amount of time they spend are the successful companies. And um, and to me, that's, that, that, has, that has always been very critical. I, I've always been very focused, right, um, in the geographies I want to focus on. I've been very focused on the customers I want to focus on. Believe it or not, there's business which we turn down because we don't see long-term growth or long-term, you know, it's not strategic enough for us, right? Um, and um, and I think keeping that focus in the team, right, I think that's also been very important because, and, you know, and, and, and there are all sorts of issues, right, with, with clients, right? I mean, you might have a bad receivable, you might have companies who have gone bankrupt, you know, you have people, companies who are never happy um, with, with what you do, right? And... Um, and, and those are losing battles, and they can take up a lot of your time. So we've been very focused on how we spent our time in, in growing our businesses. And I guess to that point, when it comes to um, to making a strategic decisions, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. uh, and also you have the, the the background of being an engineer. So so mm-hmm. how do you typically um, go about making a strategic decision? Gut. So um, you know, it, it's it's a lot of gut feeling um, because you know they all they always say right. The, 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 the decision which you come up with comes up in the first couple of minutes. And then people do a lot of analysis on that decision and so on and so forth. But, you know, we, uh, because because of the agility of our company, the flexibility of our company, yes, we, we have all the processes and controls and all that stuff. We are obviously CMI level 5 certified, right? Um, so we have all the certifications. So we have all those things. However, right, uh, a lot of it is just, just gut, gut feeling. So, for example, um, in 2010, um, we came up with a strategic alliance, and this is all online, by the way, with uh, Motorola, right? We took over the uh, the messaging business, right? It was a gut feeling that, you know, messaging and mobility and all stuff will be the wave of the future, right? Um, and it turned out to be an extremely great move. Um, today, we service over 149 million uh, customers, uh, using our messaging platform, and um, you know, we this year we probably transact over a trillion messages. Um, so, and then you know, we have used um, that background which we, which we had in the mobility field to get a big step ahead of our competitors. And um, and Zyter is a separate company which which uh, we can talk about, yeah. um, but it's well, something which which you know, genesis of that was the knowledge we had there also. And we'll talk about cider in in just a bit. Yeah. But but to continue here, uh, talking about the journey, right? With mm-hmm. the um, with basically with Infinite Computer Solutions, there is something that I found very interesting, and mm-hmm. that is that even though you had you know studied you know in the U.S. and you know you you started to develop the concept here, mm-hmm. you make the move as you continue to grow and and mm-hmm. scale the business, you go public, not in the U.S., but in India. Why is mm-hmm. So, um, when we decided to go p- public in India, um, the technology business, the services business, was still relatively a a, no- a, a, a novice or, a, or a, uh, a, a foreign concept in the U.S. markets. Uh, however, in India... Um, the the value and the evaluations and all that stuff for services companies was extremely high, and I think uh, the evaluations and all that stuff was a driving factor uh, behind why uh, I went public in India. Uh, however, um, in hindsight, um, you know, was it the best decision? Um, I still debate that, um, but but be, living in the U.S., um, you know. And uh, as as more and more countries are becoming more and more, um, you know, uh, you know, from a taxation perspective, more and more, you know, if you look at the latest tax cut which we had, uh, you know, the, the, the Trump tax cut, even though 
the corporate tax rates have gone down significantly, right? There's still this whole thing of transition tax and guilty tax and all stuff, which which have come into play. And um, and what's happening is every country is trying to maximize their tax base. And so, you know, living in the U.S., where most of my revenues in the U.S., being a U.S. citizen, you know, it's becoming it, it becomes very complicated in terms of you know having a, a you know a, a company in the U.S. and being public in India and so so and so and so forth. So. Uh, but at that time, that was that was the driving factor was the was the uh, evaluations and the um, the visibility and and things of that sort, which which I could not have got in the American markets. However, now there's a lot more appreciation for technology. There's a lot more appreciation for uh, the kind of businesses we do, and the evaluations have have really caught up or even gone higher than what they are in many international markets. Yeah, I hear you. So, what was the um... The process like of of taking the company public i mean was it like mm-hmm. here in the u.s where they take you on the latest gulf stream you know to to travel around <laughs> or, or how was that no 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 it's very um you know uh it's very um uh it's it's, it's quite different than than the uh than the u.s where um you know it's more like they do bidding and um and uh when you file your prospectus you give the range of your your IPO price. It's not a discovery process like it is in the U.S. And uh, we went public right after you know the whole 2008-2009 financial crisis. So we were one of the first uh, IPOs which went uh, public. And, and and there's two components to it. There's a there's a um, you know public subscription, which is the public mark people who subscribe to it, and then there's the uh, institution subscribers. Um, and uh, so we had a very successful IPO, and this is this is all online. But um, you know, we were oversubscribed uh, to the tune of 1.8 billion dollars, and we were only looking for like 15 billion dollars, if I if I'm, my memory serves right. So it was a gangbuster IPO. Um, and um, you know, if if I look at how we performed after the IPO, um, um, you know, um, you know, we did extremely well uh, in in the period of um, of, uh, so I took the company private in in December of 2018. So uh, we were we were listed pretty much for eight years. Um, we gave significant amount of dividends back to the shareholders, and the stock price pretty much um, you know tripled from where we were. Um, and uh, and um, you know so 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 it was a very rewarding experience for our. Um, you know, shareholders and, um, you know, those, those of who, who, who stuck by us. So, and I always believe that, that, you know, for me, my credibility is very important. Right. And, um, you know, as I, um, focus on Zyter future and, um, and also for infinite, you know, having this history of what I've done, uh, of, of rewarding my investors, uh, from a dividend perspective to the buybacks we have done to, um, the, the ability for everybody to exit, uh, you know, is something which is going to be with me uh, and, and on my um, background, which is which gives me more credibility in the future. And why why did you take the company private again, Anjay? So the company private because um, you know um, living in the U.S., um, you know, it's a hard thing being public in India, and um, the more the the rules are changing more and more where. Um, you know, every country is trying to maximize their tax base. So, for example, simple examples like in India, uh, when you pay a dividend, right, the dividend tax is paid by the company. In America, the dividend tax is paid by the individual receiving the dividend. So just a simple example, if I if I were to pay a dividend to myself in India, the company pays a dividend and then I have to pay a dividend tax here. So it's a very expensive dividend to pay, right, as compared to if I'm just a U.S. company, then uh i am paying dividend from the company and i just pay one layer of tax so, so that's just one example right in terms of liquidity in terms of and also um i really wanted to you know not focus on quarter by quarter growth because i'm still you know relatively young and i really wanted to just you know give a good exit to my shareholders and um and then able to grow the company uh you know it, you know by investing a lot of money into the business and uh, and grow the business, so that was my goal. And what's typically the? Um, I mean, we've seen a few of these cases like Dell, Michael Dell, you know, taking mm-hmm. you know his own mm-hmm. company private again. But mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. is typically the process of of doing you know a transaction of this nature? Because they're not that usual. Sure, 
So, um, again, um, the process in India is very different than what is in the U.S. Um, and, and those are all nuances which I had to really learn. But in India, what happens is it's, again, a bidding pro- It's a reverse bidding process. Where people start bidding on the, on, the, on the stock. And you have to get to 90%, um, you know, total, right? So, so it's a very scary process in terms of when people start bidding, right? So our stock literally, uh, by the time we announced, right, every day the stock was going up, like, if you look at the, the 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 history of the stock from like February March of 2018 to December, the stock pretty much doubled. And it's been you know so what happens because people are you know there's a lot of speculators who come in there's a lot of you know people just jump in who who want to you know ride on the on the share price going up right. But it's really when the book opens up, it's really a reverse bidding process where people start bidding on the shares. So let's say the share is trading at. 350. Somebody might put it 360. Somebody might put 370. Somebody might put 380. Right. Yeah. And uh, whatever the the hi- the highest price is at 90 percent, that's the price which everybody gets below that. Got it. Got it. So, but but it's a very scary process because you know, um, but when you raise the money to go private, right, you have to raise it on a personal basis, which I did, right. But that money might not be enough because the share price might just go very very high, and then in that case, the whole delisting process fails right yeah so um so you know it's, it's, very, it's very interesting but i learned a lot right and and uh, and um we were able to do it you know very successfully and we had great people supporting us and but but the key thing which uh, another key thing which is very important in, in the entrepreneurial journey is the it's not the actual execution but it's the planning which is the most important part right uh if you plan things properly and you give a lot of thought through it then the execution is ra- rather simple, right? And and uh, the results are, are 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 astronomical, and that's kind of what we did. We planned this out for a long time before we actually did it. And I guess I guess the um, you know one thing that comes to mind here while I'm listening, you know, I'm I'm kind of like putting myself on on your mm-hmm. shoes during those times, and and I can't even imagine the the amount of stress and and the high stakes that are involved. So so who is Sanjay during those you know on times full of uncertainty? Yeah, it's it's a very uh, it's a very uncertain process. You're absolutely correct, and uh, the the thing is that uh, you want to do the best you can for your shareholders. Um, you want to make sure that you provide the best exit to your shareholders because they've been with you for a long time, and you want to show them success. Uh, at the same time, you want to be fair to yourself, right? Uh, and the business needs to continue growing because you know, in my opinion, any business which is flat can only go down. And you got to keep evolving yourself, right? And um, you got to keep building your team. And um, so there's all these things happening. And um, so, you know, because the business cannot stop, right? So you're absolutely correct. It's a very uncertain time. And uh, the scary part is that it's a three-day window when you actually go private, which is in December. And you really don't know where it's going to end up. Yeah. You know, so so, so 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 that's the scary part of the whole thing, right? So it's again, it's very different in America, where you know you you offer a price and then you know whatever the shareholders approve it, and then that's the price, right? Here it's a reverse building, reverse book building exercise, and, right? And just out of curiosity, is there like any um, activity or or something that you do during you know these these tough times? Like, is there like um, meditation or yoga or something like that? <laughs> I play a lot of sports and, and to me, you know, my business, again, in, in a good way, it's, it's a game to me. It's a chess yeah. game. Right. Got and uh, that's how I look at it. I mean, you know, as an entrepreneur, like, like you are right. I mean, you never look at, I know you're very you know, accomplished and you, you teach at different schools and all that stuff. Right. You do it because you enjoy it. Right. So it's a game yeah. just like, I like, I love, I love sports, for example, I love, you know, mentoring young children. Right. Um, yeah. So those are all things which I'm passionate about. So it's very natural to me. Got it. Let me know if you agree with this. But I, I think that at least for me, what I have what I have been present to is that when you are completely unattached to the outcome, is when you're mm-hmm. able to be effective. Absolutely correct. You're 100 correct. You know, like um, I'll be very honest with you, right? Like when I started Infinite, right? It was never with the intent that I want to make money. It was never about that, right? And my lifestyle has not changed a whole lot in the last 15 years, 16 years, 17 years, right? So it's never about that. I mean, you know, like like you, I go to a lot of, uh, you know, some, right? We go to 
you know, different events and all that stuff. And we see the, the people, right. And, um, you know, American billionaires and all that stuff. And, the, and what, what really attracts me to all of them is the, is the humility they have. Right. I mean, they're so down to earth and you can see that in the giving they do and all that stuff. Right. And none of them really, you know, start out with the fact that, Oh my God, I need to make a lot of money. Right. It's okay. never about that. So you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. If, if, you know, if you go into anything at being an entrepreneur, if you're focused on the entrepreneur journey, which is to make a difference in people's lives, right? You can be a social venture, you can be a, uh, a entrepreneur or whatever, right? Uh, then, then to me, the financial gains or any of those things are byproducts. They're not the product. Yeah, absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah. So just to to wrap up on 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 your journey here with infinite computer solutions before we mm-hmm. we dive a little bit into cider how mm-hmm. big is infinite computer solutions today so uh this year we're on track to do over 700 million revenue um and it's pretty much been all organic growth um so now we're gonna you know, look at acquisitions and all that stuff um looking at doing uh over a billion dollars by 2021 22 um, and we are well on track track of that. Um, I think the deal sizes we're getting is bigger and bigger now. Uh, this whole digital transformation uh, story of where companies are, you know, outsourcing a lot of their infrastructure and application developments so and so forth. We are major re- recipients of that kind of work, and uh, also the whole you know digital transformation angle, because now what's happening is everybody is trying to become, you know you know, a technology company. If, if you look at Domino's, if you look at Uber, if you look at Facebook, you know, they all consider themselves as technology companies, right? Even though they're trying to fulfill a certain need, right? I mean, uh, Uber and Lyft are, are ride-sharing uh, companies, but they're really technology companies. If you look at the advent of Domino's, right, or other people, it's, it's the technology play there. So everybody's trying to become a technology company and I think that's very good for what, what Infinite does. I hear you. I hear you. So, and how many employees do you guys have? So, currently we have over 7,400 employees um, in, in different countries. Wow. Uh, and, and we have a significant amount of employees in the U.S. also because we do a lot of healthcare work. What a remarkable run. So, let's talk about Cider, you. your, uh-huh. your, your next venture. So, so, tell us about how Cider comes about and, and how, did you, how, how did you guys do this? Because, I mean, I'm, sure. like, I'm like blown away here because with 7,400 yeah. employees already, you just thought about complicating your life a little bit more. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the, whole, uh, the whole model in our industry is changing where uh, companies are now more and more um, looking at subscription-based models, uh, software-as-a-service models to fulfill uh, actual work. And um, if I look at the iPhone, for example, right, one of the biggest reasons of success for iPhone is the ease of use. It's about the user experience. And um, and I think, you know, in the early, you know, like if I look at the technology, the advent of technology, right, I mean, initially it was all about, you know, big systems, you know, the best technology, but everything was about the system, right? Yeah. Now, if I look at what's happening is, it's everything is about uh, faster uh, and it's about the user experience, right? So, so so you can see that change, you know, happening. And, and that's why the iPhone was so successful. Uh, I was able to leapfrog the competition um, because of the the whole user experience thing. Right. Uh, and the same thing, if you look at, um, you know, if you look at, you know, different successful products, which are, which are there, right. Uh, that's the biggest thing, right. Which, which is there. So Zyter is a company, which, which the, the whole, the whole objective is how do you combine disparate systems in an organization or, or anywhere and provide the ultimate user experience, right. So you might have an enterprise which you get, which you get called upon uh, and you have four different people calling you for four different things within the organization. Um, you know, you might be at a university, right, which, which, and, and they, they get hold of you and you will hear separately from the president, separately from the dean, separately from the alumni club, separately from giving, separately from exec ed, and so on and so forth, right? So you're really four, five, six, seven different customers to 
to the same enterprise or the same university, right? So how do you provide that unified experience, right? One unified experience where all these data points uh, from these disparate systems are all meshed together, right? So that you are one individual to that organization. That's what Zyter uh, enables you to do, right? So, and also, you know, the whole the whole concept of, um, you know, business intelligence analytics and, you know, security and, and so on and so forth, right? So all those are very uh, important aspects. And then using uh, Zyter, right? focused on, you know, particular industries, you know, from a, from a vertical perspective. So, so that's the whole function of Zyder. And I think that here you took, um, you took a page out of, you know, what you, what you did in the past with your, with your previous company with infinite computer yes. solutions, basically that you did not go out and, and go crazy with venture capital, even though you no. had like a successful background. I mean, with your kind of background, it's when people throw money at you, you know, type mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. So you waited and then you onboarded Endeavor. So so can you walk us through how you, you know, structure that? Yeah, sure. So um, so uh, Endeavor, like, you know, is in the business of, you know, they own a lot of um, events, right? And they're one of the biggest, you know, um, you know, they're also becoming more of a, more of a technology company and, you know, they own UFC and, you know, a whole, whole bunch of things. Right. Um, and so, um, so we are now supporting Endeavor in a lot of different, um, events, right. Uh, throughout the globe. Um, and, um, and also, uh, we've gone live with, um, you know, with, and this thing is online, uh, with Penn station in New York, for example, where we put beacons across the, uh, station. And when you walk in and it's going to recognize you and you can, it's going to tell you, you know, instead of standing in front of that big screen, it's going to tell you your train is delayed and this is your new platform and all this stuff. And there's, you know, there's, there's more stuff to come uh, in that, which I can disclose right now. But, um, but you know, so we've gone live with, 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 with them. And then we're also be- becoming very big uh, in the healthcare space. So, you know, for example, one of the projects we have is, uh, so Internet has opened about 50 clinics of its own. And we we have about over 200, uh, you know, doctor nurse practitioners because we just got this contract for uh, for serving um, the veterans, and um, and Zyter is going to be used for that. And then uh, Zyter also um, is being used in um, some of the hospitals, um, and also with the payers and providers both uh, payers to how you know how do you the whole user experience of how do you interact with the members you know, from providing them uh, documentation updates to providing information about their co-pays to, um, you know, because if you look at the payer, for example, everybody's trying to drive down cost, right? Yeah. And how do you drive that cost? If you look at the CBS Aetna thing, for example, right? Everybody's trying to become the Kaiser model, right? Where they are a payer as well as a provider, right? Yeah. It, 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 in, in, in some form of the fashion or the other, right? So the two ways to reduce cost is A, telehealth, right? And B, it's also... Um, you know, having their people or, or, or their members, you know, go to some preferred doctors who are charging lesser than maybe others, right? Um, so that so so that's what Zite enables you to do. Uh, is is you know we have location, we have IoT, we have you know all those kind of things uh, built in our third party interfaces, right? So we're building a complete ecosystem. Like for example, when the on the provider space, we're integrating with different EMRs, right? So that we can collect data from different EMRs. Uh, we, we have we have created interfaces to population health, uh, we, you know, to to analytic platforms, you know. So using all the information to provide the best experience to the user, as well as enabling the payers to get as much information as they can about the about the users from a population health perspective, from an analytics perspective, so that they can provide you know good uh, in terms of um, you know you know, what kind of stuff is coming up in the future uh, in terms of expenses and they can they can do those kind of things. And also, you know, proactively, you know, go after their members, you know, oh, you're 50 years old, have you gotten a colonoscopy done? And, you know, I mean, like those kind of things, right? Proactively uh, trying to solve medical problems because, uh, so, so that's what Zyter enables you to do. Got it. And I believe now you guys have over 50 employees, as you mentioned, growing nicely. So I guess, mm-hmm. you know, like after... Uh, this this experiences and I guess looking back as an entrepreneur, I think that you know we we really get to learn from our failures, right? Because from right. successes, you just you just keep it moving, and you you don't have that 
that that I would say time or or perhaps perspective to reflect to to be able to understand what happened, uh, looking mm-hmm. back and then being able to look you know ahead and 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 move you know full speed with the learning. So I guess looking back for you, you know, mm-hmm. as a, as a founder, what was let's say a very dark moment for you that was a really big breakdown that led to a massive breakthrough? Uh, so I'll be honest with you. I've, you know, I have not um, had, so, so one thing which I've done is, you know, as we have grown, uh, even though we've been very aggressive, we have had very aggressive growth, right? We have been very careful in our risk-taking um abilities right and we've always been profitable from day one yeah so so i i think from my perspective um the the challenges which you've had is that um i think the uh missteps in terms of maybe sometimes being a little too conservative than i should have been uh but at the same time i want to make sure that i don't because i learned a lot from the whole dot-com crash, and I learned a lot from the financial crisis, right? And um, and I'm a, I'm a big student of, of history, right? And so uh, having said that, I, I knew very early in the game that it's critical for me to keep inventing myself, reinventing myself, and create value, uh, you know, for my shareholders and all that stuff. And since I became public in 2010, you know, I knew that I had to continue growing. And so, you know, I, I was always very careful in how I treaded that line between growth and investing and and so on and so forth. So I think in a way that was a blessing in disguise, even though, you know, being public and all that has its own set of challenges. But I think from that perspective, it brought me a lot of discipline. The company brought me a lot of processes and, you know, things which I which, which I had to do to make the company stock grow. Got it. And and you also own um, a badminton team. So it's a yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I actually... Job. Yeah, so um, I've, I've given given it up now because uh, of my commitments now with more commitments to infield and all that stuff. But uh, I, I uh, so there's a, something called the Premier Badminton League in India where they get uh, players from from all over the world, um, you know, in badminton. And badminton, as you know, is very prevalent. I know. Also, we had a very good uh, Spanish player. Uh, oh, really? She, she she's world number one uh, in, uh, in in badminton. So she actually was. Uh, in our league also. Um, and um, so, you know, the very first year when, when we when we got the team, we didn't really know much about badminton, but I really wanted to apply uh, the whole concept of data analysis and data analytics and all that stuff. So we actually chose our team uh, based on um, based on analytics. And uh, the very first year, uh, so, so everybody started going after big names. Um, you know, and uh, we, on the other hand, we had a whole strategy of, you know, we have five games, we have to win three games. Um, and, um, and you know, so, so so that was the most important point to us. And we were able to come up with the strategy. Um, and uh, we were able to, you know, the very first year, um, we won the championship. And the Spanish player I was talking about, her name is Carolina Marin. Uh, so she's from uh, who live uh, Spain. Very so nice. she was... She was world number one in uh, in women's badminton. That's very cool. So, so let me ask you this one then: What is the biggest similarity between sports and business? Teamwork, teamwork, um, hungerness to win, and strategy. Um, I think, and and the ability to understand your competitor, right, and adapt yourself to how to beat the competition. Really cool. I think yeah, so I think that's the most important thing, right? And and also the stamina to to continue going. You might get tired. You might, you know, you know. I mean, you can't have a hiccup, right? So, yeah. Uh, so I see a lot of similarities between the two, and that's why I said earlier that to me, business is a game, uh, in in a good way, right? In which you want to win, right? If you don't win, you're going to perish. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear so, you. And then the yeah. the other thing that that I know as well is that. You have this passion for for kids, and then then also mm-hmm. you're involved with Wharton, with uh, teaching young entrepreneurs as well. So, mm-hmm. at what point in in your career did you decide it was time to give back? So very early in the game. Um, so like like I mentioned, you know, I'm on the board of the Wharton Schools, the graduate board of the Wharton School. I'm the board of the USIBC. Uh, I have I I have been supporting something called the TYE program, Thai Young Entrepreneur Program in DC. 
Uh, we have a lot of children who come every year through boot camps. We teach them about entrepreneurship. I sponsored uh, that program on a national basis on a couple of occasions. Um, and it's been a very rewarding experience, especially with the emails and all the stuff I get from kids. I remember getting an email once from a kid, and this kid came, I think, second or third or something. I might be wrong, but in the Spelling Bee competition. Uh, or she might even won the Spelling Bee competition, and she, but she didn't win our competition. And she sent me an email saying that uh, not winning this was more more gratify, uh, you know, gratifying to her than winning whatever Spelling Bee or whatever competition she had. So, so seeing the success stories of the kids, and then I also had a internship program which I was doing at the Wharton School, where so we used to send a lot of kids to Wharton. Um, you know, for uh, for different entrepreneurship and in, in marketing and and so on and so forth, and also then uh, we also have a very nice internship program at our uh, at our company. Every year we have a lot of kids who come and they learn about different products and technologies and so on and so forth. So for me, it's very important that you know kids get involved, uh, especially girls in the, in the technology space, um, because you know um, because they they are as as good, if not better than, than anybody. Right. And so I think it's very important that, you know, we, we somehow encourage, um, young students to go into technology, especially the girls, you know, so that, um, you know, so they get exposed early in the game. And I think entrepreneurship is something also, which is very, very important. And it's amazing how many kids have actually gone through our programs and after going to the program, they have changed their mind in terms of what they want to do. They want to either be doctors or something else, but now they want to be entrepreneurs. They want to be in technology. They want to be, um, you know, make a difference because technology, if you if you look at it, has made the biggest impact uh, in terms of making things faster, cheaper, uh, better, right, and being able to bring a lot of things together and make help us make informed decisions in every field. And uh, so I think, um, you know, I think. Those things are very rewarding, of course, and and I guess you know now that we're talking about you know Wharton and and you know all these people you know they're learning um, mm-hmm. incredible education. So so now knowing what you know, Sanjay, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. had the opportunity to let's say you know sit in one of those classrooms as a as a student, right, mm-hmm. uh, and and you were able to talk to your younger self, to that student sitting down, that is you, uh, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, a, a, a cup, you know, even before you started your, your first business, what would mm-hmm. be the one piece of business advice that you would mm-hmm. give to your younger self and why? Um, I think, um, the, the, the advice which I will, which I will give is that the soft skills are as important as the day-to-day, uh, you know, the MIS and the sales pipeline reviews and, and things of that sort, which you do, right? So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a fine balance between EQ and IQ, right? 70% they say is EQ, 30% is, is IQ, right? And I think it's very critical that, you know, we, 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 we focus a lot on the operation side, right? And we are like measuring ourselves like quarter to quarter or weekly to weekly or bi-weekly to bi-weekly, right? And, and life doesn't always necessarily work like that, right? I mean, uh, the thing which all of a sudden might might happen, right? So if I were to go back, uh, I would have that balance of 70-30 between the EQ and the IQ. But on the flip side, when you're starting out a company, I mean, with $1,000 and no external funding and so on and so forth, you know, it's, it's a very fine line because you don't know what the future is going to be, right? Sitting back now, I can see where I am. But when I, when I was doing it, I remember when I got my first email ID, right? And, uh, and, I opened my email and there was no emails there, right? And the whole thing was, how do I create the ecosystem to start having emails, right? Now, now we have all these employees, all these emails, you know. So if I just look at the measurement I had of the company growth, right, from a, just the email perspective, right? Yeah. It's a tremendous growth, right? I had zero emails in 2001 and now we probably have millions of emails. Yeah. So so those are all measurements which you have, right, which how you, which you, which, which you, which you can you know, model and see about the growth of the company and all that stuff. I love it. So for the folks that are listening, Sanjay, what is the best way to get in touch and say hi? Uh, best way to say hi is, you know, through our website or through my uh, email. Anjana, you want to answer that? Or I mean, anyway. you can give yeah. your, if you feel comfortable, your email or your social media handles, you know, whichever mm-hmm. one you use, you know, whatever you think it might be, it might be best. 
Yeah, uh, email ID is uh, govil-office at infinite.com. So that's one way of getting in touch. Wonderful. And are you on LinkedIn or Twitter or any of that? Yeah, yeah, I'm also on LinkedIn and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not on Twitter, but I'm on LinkedIn. Okay, fantastic. All right, well, cool. Well, Sanjay, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Yes, thank you very much for your time. And I really appreciate uh, you, 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 ha- you giving us the opportunity to talk to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.